This is season one of the Constitutional Commons podcast. This season is called The Founders of the Constitution. Your host, Rob Nadelson, is a nationally known constitutional scholar and author whose research into the history and legal meaning of the Constitution has been cited repeatedly at the U.S. Supreme Court by both parties and by individual justices. In this podcast, you will learn about the lives of leading founders and their unique contributions to the Constitution. Hi, I'm Rob Nadelson. This series of essays focuses on those American founders who exercised the most influence on the original Constitution as amended by the Bill of Rights. Each essay thumbnails the life and contributions of at least one individual. The essays also will tell you more about the Constitution, the supreme law of the land. Before proceeding with the series, some terminology may be helpful. When the series uses the word framers, it means the 55 men who drafted or framed the Constitution. They were the delegates to the Constitutional Convention held in Philadelphia from May 25, 1787 to September 17, 1787. The word ratifiers means the 1,648 delegates at the 13 state ratifying conventions meeting from December 1787, when the Delaware Convention was held, to May 1790, when the Rhode Island Convention was held. The term founders includes the framers and the most significant ratifiers and major opinion leaders in the public debate over the Constitution. Most discussions about the original Constitution overemphasize the roles of just a few founders. Americans hear a lot about James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and George Washington, but little about others. I'll give you an example of how this plays out. In 1791, before ratification of the Bill of Rights, Members of the Washington administration debated whether the new Constitution authorized Congress to charter a national bank. Now, here's how that debate usually is portrayed. President George Washington asked Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton and Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson to write legal opinions on whether the Constitution authorized Congress to charter a national bank. Hamilton interpreted the Constitution expansively and concluded that Congress could charter such a bank. Jefferson interpreted narrowly and concluded that Congress could not. The president agreed with Hamilton and even James Madison, who initially opposed the bank, later relented. The lesson here is that expansive interpretation of the Constitution makes much more sense than narrow interpretation. That's how the story is usually told. That's how I learned it in high school and college. However, it leaves out some... key facts, and the result is that the omissions render it, as we lawyers say, materially misleading. Here's the rest of the story. First, when the Constitution was written, the dominant way of reading legal documents was neither expansive nor narrow. It was a middle ground known as fair construction. Jefferson was wrong to interpret the document narrowly, and Hamilton was equally wrong to interpret it expansively. Second, whether the Constitution gave Congress power to charter a bank 
was a genuinely close question. Both opponents and advocates had reasonable arguments. Third, and here's where the story becomes important for our purposes, the typical narrative omits another founder entirely, a founder of great importance, Edmund Randolph. Randolph was the U.S. Attorney General, and it was his job, not that of Jefferson or Hamilton, to write legal opinions for the president. Moreover, Randolph was far more qualified than either Jefferson or Hamilton to address the issue. Prior to becoming U.S. Attorney General, he had served for 10 years as Attorney General of Virginia. He was a member of the committee that wrote his state's constitution. As governor of Virginia, he led his state's delegation to the Constitutional Convention. As a member of the convention's committee of detail, he personally participated in writing the first draft of the Necessary and Proper Clause, which was the clause of the Constitution at the center of the bank dispute. And at the Virginia Ratifying Convention, it was Randolph, not Madison, who was the lead spokesman for the Constitution and who addressed the Necessary and Proper Clause. By contrast, Jefferson had been in France during the constitutional debates. Hamilton had been absent during most of the framing. Moreover, Hamilton admitted that the Constitution did not not match at all what he favored. After the convention, Hamilton even wrote in a private memorandum that he wished to subvert the Constitution's limits and, quote, and this is his quote, triumph over the state governments and reduce them to an entire subordination. Obviously something quite different from what the Constitution really meant. Thus, neither Jefferson's nor Hamilton's constitutional opinions were particularly reliable. Finally, the story omits that Randolph duly submitted a legal opinion using the dominant fair construction method of interpretation. He concluded that Congress had no power to charter a bank. When you know these facts, you can see that what happened was very different from what is usually taught in school, and that Randolph has been unfairly neglected. In this series, he and others like him will be given his due. Another common and erroneous narrative is that the Constitution was the product of a conservative counter-revolution against the radicalism of the American Revolution. This is categorically false. The Constitution, especially as amended by the Bill of Rights, was not the product of any one faction, conservative or otherwise. It was the product of negotiation among people of different views, with moderates working to bring all parties together. The result was a coalition, a coalition that spanned most, although not all, of the American political spectrum. What was the political spectrum during the constitutional debates of 1787 to 1790? Where on the spectrum did key founders reside? Different writers describe the spectrum in different ways, but I divide it into six loose categories running from right to left. Now, I want you to keep in mind, though, that this is not the same way we use right and left today. The six groups are as follows. The first group were unreconstructed Tories, usually considered on the far right. These were Americans who had been loyal to the crown during the revolution and who never accepted 
the war's outcome. They favored limited monarchy over republicanism with privileges for the aristocratic few. Their view of individual rights was more constricted than that of other Americans. Instead of a new constitution, they preferred a deal with Britain whereby the states became largely self-governing units of the British Empire. During the Revolution and immediately afterward, many unreconstructed Tories fled to Canada or Britain. So during the constitutional debates, relatively few remained in America. For reasons of professional and, per and personal safety, they tended to keep quiet. Unreconstructed Tories were not part of the coalition that adopted the Constitution. Ironically, the closest American analog today to unreconstructed Tories are on the political left, today's progressives. While there are significant differences, progressives echo some key Tory beliefs, a limited view of individual rights, a broad view of government prerogatives, a tendency to promote certain government-created privileges as if they were rights, and disdain for the original Constitution. The second group moving over from the right were the high nationalists. Unlike the Tories, they welcomed American independence, but they admired the British political system and they would have preferred to partially replicate it in America. However, the high nationalists recognized that Americans would never accept a king or hereditary aristocracy. As the next best alternative, the high nationalists proposed a high-toned republic. This would include an executive chosen for life, senators chosen for life, and an elected House of Representatives. High nationalists also favored the British model of an all-powerful central government, with the states in a subordinate role if they existed at all. Although the Constitution did not meet all their desires, several high nationalists contributed greatly to it. Featured in this series are Alexander Hamilton, John Adams of Massachusetts, who was in Europe during the Constitutional Convention but authored a widely consulted book on constitutions, and Gouverneur Morris, a New Yorker who represented Pennsylvania at the convention. Next on the spectrum, moving to the left, were the moderate nationalists. They also sought a very powerful central government, but they were more Republican and Democratic than the high nationalists. Moderate nationalists were willing to reserve a constitutional place, although a subordinate one, for the states. From this group, the series will profile James Madison of Virginia, James Wilson of Pennsylvania, and we're also going to put George Washington in this category, although his political stance is difficult to categorize. The Virginia Plan, presented to the Constitutional Convention on May 29, 1787, embodied the moderate nationalist position. Next group over are the centrists. The final terms of the Constitution reflect many of the positions of the centrists because they played a pivotal role in negotiating the final bargain. Centrists favored a strong federal government, but they wanted to restrict it to specifically listed powers. The term usually used was enumerated powers. Some centrists wanted the states to participate in selecting federal officials. The original Constitution's provision 
that gave the state legislatures power to elect U.S. senators was a centrist proposal. Of course, that no longer exists today. Like the moderate nationalists, centrists favored a fair amount of democracy. Unlike the moderate nationalists, they wanted enhanced protections for the rights of individuals and the protection of the smaller states. Prominent centrists included in this series are John Dickinson of Delaware, John Rutledge of South Carolina, Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania, and Roger Sherman of Connecticut. Next group, moving again to the left, are the conditional Federalists. This is my term. I coined the term for them because, first, they favored the federalism of the Constitution, but only on condition that the document be amended, hence conditional Federalists. Among the changes they sought were a Bill of Rights, a more democratic House of Representatives, stronger protection for the states against central government interference, and full state control of federal elections. Because the centrists differed among themselves on which amendments would be sufficient, the conditional Federalists ultimately split on whether the Constitution should be ratified. Edmund Randolph eventually favored ratification, while his Virginia compatriot George Mason opposed it. Both men are thumbnailed in this series. And finally, we reach the far left, the firm anti-federalists. Some wanted to retain the Articles of Confederation with a modest increase in congressional power. Others did not think a 13-state union was viable in the long run, and they favored dividing the country, perhaps into different confederacies. The most notable firm anti-federalist was Patrick Henry of Virginia. Some of the Constitution's advocates were convinced that this group on the far left was receiving quiet support from unreconstructed Tories on the far right. In my political experience, I've seen similar phenomena. Perhaps the Tories were thinking that if the country split, as some of the firm anti-federalists wanted, then some sections might return to British tutelage. Thus, the coalition that ratified the Constitution excluded the two extremes, but otherwise spanned the political spectrum. To the individuals mentioned above, I reserve the right to add one more. Two facts will become clear as this series progresses. First, several of the figures profiled have been seriously underestimated or underappreciated. Perhaps the leading examples are John Dickinson and Edmund Randolph. Second, although the men profiled in this series often disagreed with each other, each one played a part of which all Americans can be proud. Thank you for listening to this episode from the series, The Founders of the Constitution. To make sure you never miss an episode, be sure to like this in your podcast app and subscribe to be notified every time a new episode is released. For more information about the U.S. Constitution and this series, head over to thinkfreedom.org. Thanks for listening.